I want to encourage you this morning to turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, we, Lord willing, will pick back up in Genesis in January, but we're going to step away as we prepare for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and today as we've heard of the ministry of the Gideons, it's important to remind ourselves or ask this question, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? It was John and Charles Wesley, right? Those, the founders of the Methodist movement who served as missionaries and strived to live godly lives. But by their own testimonies, they were still empty inside. In fact, they went as missionaries coming to America. Listen to what John Wesley writes. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Hear that again. He went as a missionary, but the reality is he himself needed to be converted. He had not yet been transformed, he or his brother, by the grace and mercy of God. They lack what our text shows today is true of every believer, that they have been regenerated from the inside out, not the outside in. It's important this morning as we come reminding ourselves of what Titus 1 and 16 says, that there's people who claim to know God, but by their very actions, they deny Him. You see, the reality is, Paul says to us in short, if your life is characterized by foolishness and disobedience, being enslaved to pleasure and sin, living a life of hating and hating one another and envying one another, Paul simply says to you in Titus 3, you need to be saved by the gospel. You need to be saved by the gospel. Might we ask in response to that, well, what is the gospel? How does it save? What is the gospel's very power? And so that today we're going to look in Titus chapter 3. And it's Titus who is a church planner in Crete. It's an island modern day just off the coast there of Greece. And Titus is there and Paul has left him as he's preached and proclaimed the word. And he says that, Titus, you're to do what we do in every area where we establish churches. Appoint elders, those who have the responsibility to shepherd and oversee, to preach God's word. But the truth is, Crete wasn't the kind of place that you look for people like that. In fact, Paul will say in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, he quotes one of the Cretans' own prophets saying this, that they are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And yet Paul has the audacity to say to us that the gospel can actually transform people like that. And if you would believe it, Paul says that actually... We are people like that. Paul writes here and compels the church to see the truth of the gospel, reminding us of why we on this Gideon Sunday will, again, at the end of the close of our service, have opportunity to give financially to send God's word amongst the nations, amongst our own community, that others might be transformed by the power of this gospel, that this word of God is living and active, as Mark shared this morning in Hebrews 4. But as we come to Titus chapter 3, it's important to remember kind of what Paul is doing throughout the letter. Here just for a few moments, this common theme that Paul seems to be hitting on. Hear it again. Titus chapter 1 verse 16, he says that people profess to know God, but by their very works, they deny Him. He says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In Titus chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says that Titus is to be a man who shows himself in all respects to be a model of good works. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says that God saved us 
for himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then his book ends in our text today, chapter 3, verse 1, and then verse 8. Listen to verse 1. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Verse 8 says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then as Paul finishes the letter, he says simply in verse 14 of Titus 3, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works and not be unfruitful. If I just asked you right there, just hearing that, right, you may know nothing about the book of Titus. What do you think seems to be Paul's main theme? Good works. He just continually comes back to it again and again. And I think that's what we need to ask today. Where do these good works come from? If that's what Paul is after, if that's what we are after as living this life of believers, then where do these good works come from? How do they manifest themselves? Paul answers that question for us today in Titus chapter 3. Look with me, Wood, beginning in verse 1. As the gospel first reminds us of our inability to do good. You see, the gospel is good news, but that inherently, or in, it means, right, by the same opposite end of, if there's good news, that must mean there's also what? Bad news. Listen to what Paul says, beginning, hearing first verse 1 and 2, our call to live. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's who we're called to be, but why doesn't that just happen? Why don't you and I just do the right thing all the time? Paul answers that in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The Bible is clear that we are called to love one another, to submit to rulers and authorities there, to be obedient, right, to not fight and argue. But the Bible says, in fact, we do the very opposite thing. And while we might read that and think, man, that's about, I, I know some people like that. Did you hear what Paul said? For we ourselves were once. He says, do not forget who we are, who we once were. And we might ask the question, well, what kind of sinner are we? Well, listen to what he says. He says first that we were foolish. We thought that sin would satisfy, that it would bring us this deep pleasure or joy that we were longing after, but we were deceived Further, he says to us that we were disobedient, led astray. Our sinful rebellion doesn't lead us to life, but actually unto eternal death. You see, when we disobey our te teachers, our parents, or anyone in authority over us at our job or wherever we may be, the problem necessarily isn't just with that person. It's ultimately with God who's put that people in our lives. See, the rebellion is deeper than just between us and other humans. No, the rebellion runs deep. It is rebellion. And treason against the God, the universe. Notice what he says further to them about this sin. He says that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's a gut punch. Paul doesn't call us good people with just some bad habits. It's not who we are. The Bible says that we are enslaved. Did you hear it? It's God's word. We're enslaved to these various passions and pleasures. 
He says the result of these things is that we live our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's a reminder that the times and culture in which you and I live now is not unique. This is roughly 2,000 years ago, and this was the culture. Beloved, it has been the heart of man since the fall in the Garden of Eden to be one of maliciousness, evil intent, sinful pleasures and desires. These actions are no small thing. The Bible says that even one sin, the wages of one sin, is death. It's eternal separation from God forever in a place the Bible describes as hell, this place of torment. Why? Why is that? Because we are God's image bearers. We're created in God's image. We're the Omega Day. God created us. He has no statues for which us to go and bow down to and, and that. No, we are God's image bearers. So therefore, beloved, when you and I lie or we rebel against our parents or we envy that person or we spread gossip and we begin to hate on those people, when we have this malicious intent to get evil, when we're constantly looking to quarrel, we have no intent to be gentle We're revealing to everyone that's watching that this who's actually God is because we're his image bearers. And God, as this rightful and just judge, sees our actions as sinful rebellion. It doesn't reveal his true nature. And so therefore, being a just judge, he must bring judgment on our sin. I want to shoot you straight today. Every one of us today are sinners. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all stand before God guilty, condemned. That's what Jesus says. For those who do not believe in the gospel, he says, they stand condemned already. At this moment, you're guilty. At this moment, we stand condemned. As Mark read at the beginning, Hebrews 4 and 13 makes clear, no creature is hidden from his sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's no hiding. We can deceive others outwardly, right? John and Charles Wesley were missionaries. They were leading all of these movements. And yet inwardly they were full of dead men's bones. In response to this truth, some will run out and try to make themselves worthy to God by doing enough good things to seemingly outweigh the bad. The dulling of our conscience just further affirms the fact that we are enslaved and led astray by sin. Why? Because in that action of trying to be a good enough person, what we're doing is just trading one idol's pleasure for another idol, pride. We think, you know what, I've sought it this way. You know what, I'm going to change my life and now I'll be good enough that God will accept me. No, that is never going to bring us to God as Paul's going to say. So we must ask, then, Paul, what will rescue us from being enslaved to sin? If that's the bad news, that I am condemned and guilty and I can't save myself, then what is the good news of the gospel? That's where Paul comes in verses 4 through 7 and 8. As he tells us this glorious power of the gospel to save. Listen to what he says, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, did you hear the difference between God and humanity? Between God and us? I mean, we're hating one another. We're envious. We're, ma we're malicious intent. We're enslaved. But did you hear God who He is? Goodness and loving kindness. 
In other words, it's God's love, his own goodness as God that causes him not to retreat from us in our sin, but actually to come closer. Did you hear that? Did you? I mean, you and I, listen, we are living sin-filled lives. We're enslaved to sin. But God does not, he does not leave us in our sin. He's not repelled by our sin, but in some way, some majestic way that is beyond understanding, God doesn't run from us on our sin, but actually draws nearer hope of the gospel this is why it's good news when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared but why would god bring himself in this way why would god draw near to sinners listen to what it says next verse 5 of titus 3 he saved us but when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared he saved us he saved us we're enslaved to sin. We, we can't save ourselves. Ephesians 2 and 1, Paul says we're actually dead in our trespasses and sins. And listen, when we begin to hear that truth and it begins to hit home, we start to see this is the greatness of our salvation. God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He has rescued us. He has brought salvation to us. But why we ask, like, well, who's God saving us from anyway? It might surprise you, but God's saving you from himself. He's saving you from his just wrath and judgment. That's why Paul will tell the church at Thessalonica, praise be unto God to our Lord Jesus Christ who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. God saves you from himself for himself. What a moment to contemplate. That's who this God is. He is a Savior. To rescue us from his own just and rightful judgment. Well, might we ask, well, why did God save us? Why would God save me? We might think with all of Paul's emphasis throughout this letter on works, that it's somehow that God just saw some good things in us. That he saw our potential, that God maybe just saw that, you know what, maybe those people are really bad, but we're, we're not that bad. But Paul destroys that prideful thought next. Look what he says, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Paul simply says that if you are saved, it's because God saved you. Now, for many Christians, that in of itself may sound feel offensive. Again, it's because deep down we think that we're actually good. We think that somehow we can break our own chains and that we can come back home any way and any time we want in our own strength. But Paul says to us gently, no, no, you're enslaved to sin. You're trapped by its pleasures. You're deceived and led astray. And you're blinded because of the work of the enemy. But God is greater. And he saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God doesn't save us because we are deserving. He saves us because he is a merciful God. We might wonder, well, what is mercy? Mercy is when we don't receive what we deserve. And what our sins deserve is eternal judgment from God forever in hell. Don't forget again who we are in verse 2. 
We're disobedient, foolish, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days. And this is how we live our days. Malicious envy, hated by others and hating one another. But what is God's heart? God's heart, according to Paul, is one of kindness and love and mercy. You think it's an interesting thing when we consider the pages of Scripture that time and time again we hear that God has been provoked to anger, but we don't hear that He's provoked to mercy. Why? Because mercy is His heart. It is God's heart. is one of love and kindness. It is God's nature that He is a God of mercy and everlasting kindness. And how do we know that? Because you and I are blessed to live in a place where we have the Word of God. You see, that's why we're going to give this morning. It's because there are those who have not heard this truth. They don't have this truth. And we as God's people who hear and realize this is the greatest treasure. There's nothing greater than Christ and the gospel. And it urges us forward to give and to go and to share this hope with the nations and our community. Amen? Man, it moves you. As a student, to realize, man, when I walk back in the classroom this week, I need to be intentional to start telling my friends about Jesus. So we've been encouraging some of the kiddos in our own community group. Maybe it's just the first step of just praying before you eat that meal at that lunch table or breakfast table at your school. Maybe it's us as adults need to contemplate, why do I keep having that old classmate from school on my heart and mind, that old coworker? Why do they just keep ruminating through my heart and mind? Because God delights in saving. And He's putting them on your heart and mind, beloved. I've got to believe it's for a reason. That you might pray for them and you might come and share the good news of the gospel. That's why again today we want to send this God's word to our community, to the nations. So that's why we're saved. It's because God is merciful. But might we ask readily in response to this, how are we saved? Listen to what Paul says further. Look again at God's word. Verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by, this is how it happens, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's some thought of this washing of regeneration points to baptism, but we know the water has no saving power. It's not magical. This washing of regeneration points to something deeper, this becoming of a new creation. It's interesting. You see the word regeneration is the word regenesis. It's a new beginning. And that's what happens. Our status when we are saved through the mercy and grace of God, we become, as Paul says, a new creation. This old is gone. The new has come. We who were once guilty are now declared innocent. We who were once God's enemies are now adopted. And as Paul says in verse 7, we are heirs of God's family. As Rick pointed to in John 14, he has welcomed us into his home. For all eternity. It is as John Christostom said, the early church father lived in 400 AD, said, For as when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it, nor makes any addition to the old building, but pulls it down to its foundations and rebuilds it anew. So in our case, God has not repaired us, but has made us anew. Hallelujah. But it's not only that that he's made us new. Notice what else he says there. By the washing of regeneration. So as we are being saved, the Holy Spirit is at work regenerating us, causing us to become a new creation. Look what he says. In this renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
That it's not just simply happening of our, our, our position before God that we are declared innocent, but there's an inward renewal. What happens here? That God removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. You see that we once hated life and hated others, but now we desire to show others mercy and grace. That those who once used to be our enemies are now those that we pray for and love. You see, the heart of rebellion against any authority, whether that's the parent or the teacher or the coach or the person at your job or whoever it is, now is one of desiring to submit and surrender. You see, we used to love sinful pleasure and pursue these lustful desires. But now we've been inwardly renewed that what we once delighted in, we now hate. We have a new worship, a new affection, a new desire, and that is Christ. It's the power of the gospel. It's a transformation. I want to ask you, just really transparent, straightforward. Have you experienced this? Are we talking about you this morning? Are we talking about somebody you know, not you? Don't rush by. Don't rush by this moment. Contemplate anew. Are we speaking about you in these pages? Have you been regenerated, renewed? Is there a transformation of your heart? Or is it merely outward? A religious person. These verses are so often thought to maybe be an early creed of the church. If so, it's brought two members of the Trinity before us. God the Father and God the Spirit. But now we're introduced to the third. Look what he says in verse 6. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul has shown us God the Father who was the planner and initiator of our salvation in verse 4. But now we see that his Christ is the one who secures our salvation. He brings us the eternal redemption. It is him through his sinless life and death and burial and resurrection that we now, the ones who were once guilty, have been declared innocent because of Christ. Because of God's mercy, because of God's lavish grace and love and kindness, not of any work of our own. And then it was the third member of the Trinity. It was the Holy Spirit. He was the instrument of our regeneration. It's the Spirit who comes to cause us to be born again. He is our one who renews us from the inside out. And notice what he says there, verse 6. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Those are the words that echo the words of Joel chapter 2 and Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Contemplate that for just a moment. Do you realize what this means? This means that what was true of the very first Christians and the early church is now true for every single person in Christ. It wasn't like, oh man, they got a special dose of the Holy Spirit. Here I am 2,000 years later. I get like the half the knockoff. No. He uses the same language to say, listen, for everyone that's been born again, you've received the Spirit of God. God's Holy Spirit has come to indwell you. We might ask, well, what's the end of all of this, Paul? What's, what's the goal? What's, what's God after? Listen to what he says. Verse 7. So that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, these things are excellent and profitable 
for people. Did you hear it? So that we who are justified by the grace of God, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We who were once sinners and rebels have now become God's children. And it displays the glory of God, does it not? That He welcomes us, that He saves us, that He brings us, that He calls us His children. It, it magnifies the greatness of His glory. I mean, when you see your sin, I was talking to a brother this week. Man, I, I was getting ready one morning. I just could not stop just these thoughts of sinful things I had done in my past. And they were just like, bam, pounding me, pounding me, pounding me. And I was like, God, why? Why did I do those stupid things? Why did I respond that way? God, have mercy on my soul. And I'm telling you, it just caused me to run to Christ all the more. Mercy. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. I just couldn't stop saying, God, thank you. Thank you that as far as the east is from the west, so as he removed our transgressions from us. Hallelujah, church. Man, if to be free is to be free indeed, if the Spirit of God has set you free, you are free indeed. This is it, that we would become heirs of eternal life, church. That's this hope of this gospel. That we would live with God forever. That we'll never die. That we'll never sin. We'll never grow old. There'll be no more need of pills or surgery. There'll be no more brokenness in your families and your homes. It's the hope of the gospel. It is Psalm 16 and 11 coming in its fullness that in your presence is the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Can you imagine that? Fullness of joy, pleasure forever and ever. How do we become these heirs? Look at this. You may hear this and say, well, how does this happen? The saying is trustworthy. Verse 8, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed... Right, as Rick was sharing from John's gospel, like over 90 times in John's gospel, the word believe, 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 believe. Brother Todd's been preaching on Wednesday nights, teaching us to, to memorize the, the purpose statement, right? These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Believing. It is our call to hear this gospel and respond. To believe it. Thus, to the non-believer this morning, this text is sobering. It's a reminder that even good Jews, good Muslims, good Hindus, just good people are not saved by being good. That's not my thoughts. Listen again to the Word of God this morning. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. To the non-believer, this is a reminder you will not be good enough. To the church, it ought to urge us forward and quit deceiving people and making them think they're good enough to get there on their own. Enough with the Disney theology that all dogs and all roads lead home. They do not. That's lies and deception. The church should not perpetuate those. Let's speak the truth. This morning is a reminder that we aren't saved by works of righteousness. Simply put, you cannot be good enough this morning. God's word says to you this morning that the God's heart is one of mercy, it is loving kindness that brings us to repentance in Romans 2 and 4. And maybe you hear this this morning and say, Blake, I am enslaved to this world. I know that I, there's nothing. I, I am foolish. I'm disobedient. Let astray. Check, 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 check. And you just keep on checking, bro. 
And maybe you hear this morning and say, my heart is drawn to the Savior, but what should I do? Maybe let the Savior himself tell you. In Luke 18, he tells the story. He says there's two men. One was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. He says they both went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee began to pray like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I give. I pray. I go to church. It says that it came time for the tax collector to pray, but it says he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat him chest, a sign of sorrow and mourning. He simply prayed these words. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. That man, the tax collector, he went home justified, forgiven, and not the other. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Today, to the non-believer, if you desire mercy, come and bow. Bow before Him. That you might stand and sing with us one day, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. To the church, I think all of this leads us back to where we began. God's saving work in us is to transform us. That we as believers might now devote our lives to good works. You see it. Where do these good works come from? We've been wrestling with that today. It's from the gospel. It's the work of God. But it ought to transform us. So maybe we just ask just as we close, how might our lives look in light of this passage? I think one is a reminder. Guess what? Jesus didn't come to you and I when we cleaned up our life well enough. No, it says that we were actually shaking our fist at God. And yet in his love and his mercy and his kindness, he still came to save us. Might that be a reminder to us to not wait for others to favor us before we start serving them? Consider that. That we might not start, we might not wait to the moment when somebody else favors us or shows us kindness or shows enough good stuff that we serve them. That's not the ministry of the gospel. And one of the ways we serve them, how is that? By sending the word of God. That that brother right there might receive it in a California jail. The hope of the gospel. Notice, remember again, Paul said to us in Titus 3, verse 3, that we were ourselves were once enslaved. I think it's a reminder to us we can be so easily frustrated by others in the church or in our families. It's important to remind ourselves what Paul says. Don't forget that's what you once were. Be patient. Be gentle. Be kind as we speak the truth in love. Finally, fight the temptation to believe that the reason why God accepts you this week is because you've somehow been good enough. That's not the gospel. And it never will be. And if that's your view of the gospel, you'll never, ever rest. You'll always feel like, man, if I've been good enough this week that I could actually sing or I could pray or that I could teach this Sunday school class or I could drive this bus or can I actually show up to Thanksgiving meal delivery? I mean, man, I mean, come on. Come on. Now, I'm not advocating for sin. I hope and pray you've heard that. But, beloved, you and I will never be good enough. That's the gospel. We're not good enough. We're making that declaration by submitting to Christ. I'm not good enough. I must look to you. I'm trusting in you. I receive your mercy and grace. Thus, can we not sing and rest in these words? Hear them. You've sang them many times, I'm sure. Here I find my greatest treasure. 
Hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood. This is the words we've been singing, the words of Titus 3 and the hope of the gospel. I hope and pray that is your resting place. And in that rest of his mercy and grace, you and I are now zealous for good works. Let's go. Take the gospel to this community and the nations. Let's give sacrificially and joyfully this morning because we know what the word of God proclaims and we want the nations to hear that and be glad. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you, God, that you've given it to us, that we would hear it this day. Let us treasure it anew. Let us not despise it or hurry past it, but let us sit and ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Father, may you see fit to give us thankful hearts, Lord, hearts that are just rejoicing that you have shown mercy to people like us. We were once enslaved, but by your kindness you have set us free. Thank you that you sought me and bought me by your redeeming blood. God, we were strangers wandering from the fold of God, and you have come to rescue us by interposing your precious blood. Thank you. Today we leave thankful and rejoicing for the gospel. For it is the salvation of everyone who believes. We pray this in Jesus' name. The church said, Amen.